Welcome to the ACFCS Financial Crimecast, a briefing featuring the latest analysis, updates, and perspectives from across the financial crime spectrum. I'm Brian Spodekindle, VP of Product Development with ACFCS, and today's episode is something a little different. We spend a lot of time on this show talking about emerging trends, future risks, what's coming next, but as the old adage goes, how can you know where you're going if you don't know where you've been? So, especially after periods of intense change and transition like the last 18 months, it can be very helpful, even essential, to take a step back and reflect on what we've learned. So that's exactly what we're doing today, reflecting on what we've heard and what we've learned about key FinCrime compliance challenges, pain points, and successes from some of the leading practitioners in the field. Joining us as our guide is John O'Neill. I'm very happy to have him here. He's an SVP at the award-winning RegTech Silenate. He's going to draw on his work with financial institutions around the globe, sharing some of the key insights he's gained from speaking and listening to those directly on the front lines. So, John, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to have you on this episode of the Financial Crimecast. Uh, our keen listeners and ACFCS superfans out there have probably caught you on some of our webinars in the past, uh, doing a fantastic job moderating. And uh, it's great to sit down and, and have a, a one-on-one conversation with you. So thanks for being here. Thank you, Brian. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. So first off, why don't you kick it off by just telling us a little bit about yourself and Silenate. This conversation is going to be, you know, largely uh, about your experience and the experience working with the clients of, uh, of your firm. So uh, let's start there. T- give us a little bit about your background and, and the organization's background. No, thanks. Thanks. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm in sales. I run the sales organization at Silenate. And uh, you never, you never want to give a, a sales guy too much rope to talk about themselves, man, because that, that's that. <laughs> <laughs> dangerous water, but let me see. I'll keep it brief. I'll keep it brief. Silent. Let's talk about Silent Eight. I mean, Silent Eight is is one of the most exciting companies I have ever had the pleasure to work for. We're. Um, I remember when I was interviewing, they were they were they were, they were pitching me that we're you know what are we doing? We're going after the toughest, the the really big remaining problem in compliance, which is actually solving all those alerts generated by your sanctions team, by your PEPs team, you know, all those folks running your adverse media group, actually. You know, not just screening those alerts, not just risk scoring them, but actually solving them by means of artificial intelligence. So machines that come in, learn how your best analysts behave in, inside your inside your organization, and then bringing that uh, that you know all that computing power to actually solve and disposition all those alerts. So it was it was a fascinating pitch. It was a great pitch. Got me interested right out of, out of the gate. I uh, I did of course come on board. I run uh, North American Sales for Silent Eight, and. Um, I am, you know, I was brand new to financial crime. I, my background was all in artificial intelligence. I got a, I got a PhD many many years ago in in, uh, um, in in computing at the University of Illinois. My background was all in AI. I wrote a book on AI, and, and I was selling uh, fraud AI. So, I spent the last boy, I spent the, the most of last year sort of diving into this space, learning everything about fin crime, learning everything about. Um, you know, uh, the space and the industry and, and just talking to people. And Brian, I mean, I don't need to tell you this. This is an absolutely fascinating space for, <laughs> for so many reasons. Yeah, without a doubt. It's hard to think of too many other. Uh, I'm sure there are some. So I'm biased, obviously, because I'm uh, a financial <laughs> crime nerd. But it's hard to think of too many other topics where really there is the chance to make uh, such a meaningful impact with artificial intelligence in particular. I think there's just a ton of promise right now in the, the financial crime space. And I know, you know, there is a, 
the sort of like the chart of the hype cycle, right? Where you uh, you have the run up and there's a ton of hype, and then you enter the trough of disappointment. Um, and arguably, where <laughs> yeah. you know we arguably we hit the trough of disappointment, maybe you know a couple of years ago with AI. Uh, but I think we're I think we're on the the other end of it, or at least we're, we're getting there. Um, and there's some you know there's just some really interesting real real impact from it um, taking place in the financial crime compliance and investigations and um, uh, other you know aspects of financial crime as well. So you know on that note, um, part of what's driven that that kind of second look at AI and this maybe resurgence of interest is the last 18 months. Um, there's mm, been a yeah, pandemic, yeah. in case anybody yeah. missed it, there, there was a pandemic. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And there was massive disruption to the financial services industry. And, and you've kind of had a front row seat to how that's played out at a lot of your clients. Um, so what's been some of the more interesting aspects of your work, especially over the last 18 months? Boy, what a question. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I started I started this job in April of last year. One of the fascinating things for me, right? So, I, you know, picture this. It's, it's April. We're, we're, you know, three weeks into shutdown, um, you know, in, in, across the country. I'm, uh, I'm starting to call banks. I'm starting, you know, trying to introduce myself. And nobody wants to take a phone call, right? I mean, these banks were in the middle of an ex- absolutely extraordinary change in business operations. In March and April of last year, you know, uh, most of the banks I talked to, many of them had just finished doing a review. You know, do we want to move to, uh, you know, one of these one of these slow sort of business business assessments? Does the bank, you know, maybe a six month an eighteen month study? Does the bank want to move to more work from home? And many of those decisions were no. And then right in the middle of March, suddenly, critically, every bank in North America decides we are moving completely to you know work from home everybody everybody's going home we're shutting the offices down we're sending people home what does that mean <laughs> that means that you can't buy a laptop for love or money you know every every bank in north america is suddenly trying to buy uh, two thousand laptops to send their their people home there were no laptops right um so it departments across the country were scrambling to try and and uh, uh set up highly secure environments to allow people to do critically, you know, mission critical jobs at home. And they were trying to do this within a period of 48 to 72 hours for thousands and tens of thousands of people. It was chaos, right? Now, um, you know, but this is this is a testament to this organization and to this industry, right? These are these are companies, these are large, you know, many of them are, are Fortune 500 companies with extremely, you know, extremely capable IT teams. And when you look at what, what this industry did, move their entire population with minimum disruption to work from home over a very, very short period of time. And obviously there were critical shortages, everything from, you know, routers to, um, you know, to the network security devices to, you know, to, to most critically to laptops, things like that. but over a period of about three to three and a half weeks, the entire industry moved, uh, you know, almost 100% to work from home. And it's staggering the small amount of disruption. People were still able to go to the bank. People were still able to withdraw money, you know, write checks, uh, send their send their Zelle with, with remarkably little disruption. So all of that chaos, all of that enormous business transformation was shielded from customers. You know, customers saw very little, if any, disruption. It was an, an amazing testament to the power of, you know, why do you, why do you spend billions of dollars on IT and training? You know, <laughs> now you know why. If you didn't know before, you know why. It's so that your, your team 
can on a dime can transition like that in you know and i won't call it seamlessly but with minimum disruption i, I was astonished to see it happen people were still in the middle of that still taking my calls and still talking to me and still you know and and uh, i'd be talking to people as they were running to their cars and getting you know and and talking about ai and trying to sell them something and and learning about the scale of what was going on it was an ex- exciting and a, an astonishing time to be honest with you. Yeah, it really was. It really was impressive. I mean, I think it, it as you as you properly noted, it is a, it is a testament to the dedication of the financial services industry in general at a time of such uncertainty that they did manage to keep it going so seamlessly. Um, and that's true of compliance operations as well. I you know it's really yeah, absolutely. Uh, yep, yep. Uh, people people moved heaven and earth to make sure that those alerts were getting properly uh, dispositioned and uh, that uh, everyone could do their job even at home in a secure way. So um, uh, on that note, you know, it wasn't it wasn't all, you know, sunshine and roses, so to speak, in no, the, last, the last 18 months at all. There were some there's some major challenges. So, I, you know, in your work with some of the largest banks in the world, what what are some of the big challenges that they faced and, and maybe are still facing in many cases? Well, I mean, obviously that that whole transition, and and when we talk about move, you know, moving to work from home, that was only one segment of it, right? I mean, that was only one aspect of it. Obviously, over the last uh, twelve to sixteen months, there's been many, many facets of that. Moving, you know, moving to a much more distributed uh, workforce, moving, um, you know, moving all of the, you know, the getting access to all the critical data, all of that. But there's also been recruiting, you know. Uh, um, and I'm, it's, it's timely because I'm actually on a panel this week. I'm moderating a panel with the ACFCS uh, on recruiting, on, on what it, you know, what it takes to sort of uh, grow or, and nurture a world-class, you know, financial crime organization at a bank. Uh, we're talking to folks from MidFirst, IBC, East West, and, and uh, People's United. So if, if you'll if you'll forgive me for putting a plug in for that that panel come up on Wednesday, but then, <laughs> definitely in, in any, forgiven. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. So recruiting is one. You know what? The other thing that I learned, I mean, remember I was new to all this back in April of last year, right? The biggest challenges were just continuing to do the day-to-day stuff. And I was learning for the first time the actual scale of the problem. And it is it is astonishing. I mean, banks are at the on the front lines of one of the biggest business challenges of the last few decades. Right? I mean, ba- banks sort of face an, an existential challenge. The world is changing rapidly. And the financial markets are all this, you know, they are the critical background in this, this never-ending battle against terrorism, money laundering, human trafficking, corruption. I mean, think about it. You're a, you're a head of compliance or you're on a compliance team that's trying to deal with a pandemic, trying to, to get set up. And we, meanwhile, criminals are, are having an absolute heyday. They are, they are taking advantage of all the stimulus that's going out. They are, uh, you know, they're finding new ways to, uh, to steal and, and to, you know, to, to um, you know, create false identities. And you have, to, you have to, it's your job to stay on top of this, regardless of the amount of disruption you're dealing with. So I think those were some of the biggest challenges. I watched the industry sort of deal with all that, and it was, uh, it was pretty inspiring. Yeah, and I mean, it was a it was a interesting time in a lot of ways because there was, from a regulatory perspective, there was sort of some level of forbearance. There were some interpretive uh, notes and guidance put out that said, uh, you know, there will be some flexibility, yeah. but it wasn't like you had your regulatory obligations lifted by any means, right? <laughs> you you exactly had to keep right. ensuring that you were compliant with, you know whatever the applicable laws of regulation of your jurisdiction was, the uh, BSA, AML, exactly right. and so on and yes. so forth. So, um, 
Yeah, yeah, it was still you were still in the same boat you were before the pandemic. <laughs> Except the boat is now moving at a much higher speed. Exactly right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so, um, reflecting back on these conversations, you, know, you, you talked to you clearly talked to a lot of people as part of the job. Um, uh, what are some key themes, or what key pain points can you identify? Can you give us some examples of of sort of you know, the themes of the, the pandemic and, you know, hopefully with the start of the, the post-pandemic period that we're now in. Oh, I'd be glad to. I'd be glad to. Because I, I, I've talked to some some wonderful people who've been, uh, um, you know, not, not just willing to take a call from a sales guy, but willing to, you know, spend half an hour on the phone sort of exp- <laughs> explaining the basics to, to a sales guy who, you know, who's brand new in the industry. So, uh, I want. I would love to give some shout outs to some folks who were who were uh, enormously helpful in sort of getting getting me to the point where I really really understood what's going on out there. Um, you know, to the extent that I do. I was talking to a woman named Cindy Nowacki Weaver, who's the OFAC officer at KeyBank, a wonderful woman. She and she said something I'll, I'll never forget. She said, you know, sanctions is a very painful place, especially for the person who has to convince management that they have to spend money. Right? I mean, think about this. It is not cheap to invest in a sanctions program, but the consequences of failure are enormous. And it goes back to what you and I were talking about 10 minutes ago, right? I mean, that the financial markets are at the, you know, you know, they are, they are the critical battleground in this, all this ceaseless battle against terrorism, money laundering, human trafficking, corruption. Uh, sanctions are increasing and sanctions are this, you know, they're just one aspect of fin crime, but, you know, sanctions are this established tool of, of international diplomacy, right? I mean, nations are as belligerent as they were 100 years ago, right? Except the operational theater these days, you know, it's, it's not, a, it's not a, a battlefield in, Nor- in Normandy or, you know, or, or Alsace-Lorraine. It, it's the critical, the operational theater is financial markets where all these geopolitical conflicts are resolved. Nations today, they exercise their authority much more frequently through financial means, through sanctions and through other punitive measures, um, and through active enforcement. So, and, and so basically, the uh, you know, nations are putting banks at the forefront. They are conscripting banks, and particularly those in, compliance, you know, those in the compliance programs, to become foot soldiers in this particular battle, right? And the U.S. Treasury Department, you know, the Office of Foreign Assets and, of, and Control, OFAC, issued about $1.3 billion in penalties in 2019, and that was greatly increased last year, right? So, so all these sanctions are increasing. Uh, sanctions programs that ensure, ensure compliance at banks are growing steadily. They're very, very expensive. But the folks who are running these programs see these penalties con- constantly increasing, and they're constantly having to, you know, have to go back to management. This is what Cindy was talking about, right? They're constantly having to go back to management and say, "This is where we are deficient. This is where we need to step up, and this is what's going to co- what, what it's going to cost." And the reason, the only thing that gives them ammunition to do that is that these consequences, as I mentioned, for a failure are so are so enormous. Back in 2007, this was a great example that uh, Cindy helped me understand. Back in 2007, a big fine was a few hundred thousand dollars. Everybody, everybody in the industry sat up and took notice when OFAC leveled a, a fine of a few hundred thousand dollars. Today, it is nothing to see fines of a few hundred million. That <laughs> is an enormous increase over a period of a decade, right? That is how seriously 
Um, you know, nations are, this is how seriously nations are starting to wield sanctions and not just the United States. We're also talking about China, the EU, um, and countries around the world are, are all getting into, you know, they're all learning the power of, of these kind of uh, sanctions as both a punitive and a corrective measure. Uh, and it's, you know, they're asking, uh, how do you police this? It's all done through financial markets, which means the burden falls on the compliance individuals. So um, Cindy helped me a lot in, in, in many, many others I talked to help me to understand um, exactly what's going on, exactly what the scale of the problem is. I do want to I do want to give one shout out to a woman named Rebecca Boddington, who's the VP of uh, Economic Sanctions and Anti-Corruption over First Republic. And she's you know, she said she said that the, this whole industry is at the intersection of foreign policy and national security. I thought that was very astute. Right. I mean, people don't get into banking to become you know foreign policy experts or national security experts. But you have to because this is where the action is. This is where foreign policy is enacted. This is where the action is today in national security. It's all happening, you know, in offices and in cubes, um, you know, among compliance individuals at, 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 uh, at banks, large and small around the world. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting perspective that it, it is, uh, uh, you know, and I think it's one that's actually been really driven home by Things like the AML Act of 2020, which really reiterated um, that financial crime is a national security issue. And this is something that's not new. This perspective of financial crime as national security has been around since at least the Patriot Act. But uh, it's just repeatedly driven home by, you know, events of the past several years, several months. Um, so it is, it, it is a, you know, a really important thing to keep in mind as we're dealing with this, that it's not just, you know, about the day to day, um, or even the big picture of stopping criminal organizations. There's even this other level up of, you know, being a part of securing your country, right. Um, from financial crime threat. So, uh, yeah, as really interesting perspective. That is absolutely right. Now, I want to expand that a little bit because I went into this thinking the exact same thing, just as you did, that this is all about securing, you know, the, the country's uh, national interests. But there's there's far more to it than that. And especially when you start talking to um, larger banks or any bank who has global operations. I mean, this is the new global reality, right? I mean, financial institutions are merging. They're expanding global operations, which means they're being exposed to more regulation. This isn't, this isn't just about U.S. national interests anymore. It's also about being highly cognizant of what, uh, what watch lists there are in, in Europe, in the U.K., in China. Right? The more, more nations are sanctioning, enforcement is rising swiftly, penalties are rapidly increasing. And banks who are operating with, you know, with global operations, which is frankly becoming virtually everyone, uh, mean that they are exposed to not just penalties of our own, you know, our own countries, but the countries of every, you know, the, the, the you know, the sanctions and, and the enforcements of every country which we're doing business with, which is frequently dozens, if not more. So which means and if you take a look at it, you, you, you saw at the end of last year, it wasn't just OFAC. You know, the, the, you know, the, the, uh, the U.S. national policy you had to worry about. China was also starting to sanction individuals in a punitive way, just like uh, the U.S. has been doing with OFAC, except they were reaching out and, and sanctioning people inside Trump's administration. Mike Pompeo. <laughs> and so think about this. Now, now you're a bank in the United States. Now you're a bank in Europe. And you now have a sanction. You, know, you have a, a uh, the head of, uh, you know, the head of a cabinet 
in the United States on a sanctions list with a, you know, with a country you're doing business with. It puts you in, a, in an incredible quandary. How do you deal with something like this? But more and more, yes. this is day-to-day business for banks. Yeah, uh, it is. It's fascinating. And it's, it's, it's this kind of paradoxical reality where you have a highly globalized financial system, um, but very divergent national interests within that that you have to navigate so exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, well very well put yeah you're, you're totally right it's not just you know securing the national interest it's also yet another level above that of having that global perspective too and navigating those uh those global waters so so we've outlined a lot of challenges we've outlined a lot of uh of risk areas but uh, looking forward you know let's 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 uh, let's see if we have reasons to be optimistic. <laughs> do you do you feel there's a sense of optimism currently within the financial crime prevention world? Are are you know, and particularly around the theme that we've been we've been really focusing on, which is this this disruption that's led to a lot of innovation. Are people's attitudes towards technology and innovation in general changing? You know, after after this experience. You know, Brian, that's a great question. And I do. I, I am optimistic, but, you know, it's easy for me to be optimistic. I'm a tech guy, right? My, my job <laughs> is television, right? I'm, I'm, in the, I'm standing in front of the people who are trying to do this job, and I'm trying to sell them some optimism. I'm trying to tell them, you know, the technology is the answer. So, you know, it's easy for me to, to be optimistic. I'll tell you what, what excites me is when I see optimism mirrored back to me, by the folks who are doing this day to day, right? The the folks, that, the heads of BSA at at, at uh, banks across the country, and I'd love <laughs> I'd love to be able to tell you that it's all tech, right? I mean, the, the AIs that we're selling these are the things that are going to change the world, and and there is an element of that. But the reason, the real source of the optimism I see, isn't rooted just in technology. It's in it's in community. It's in the in a growing community that's happening inside banks and financial institutions, not just in the United States, not just in Canada. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, banks are growing in a sense of community all around the world. And it's it's been forced upon them, I think, by all this level of regulation, right? When you – people think that regulation – is a uh, you know is sort of cut and dried and everything is lined out and that's that nothing could be further from the truth when you actually crack open and read um you know the guidance from fincen the guidance from ofac it is very very basic it says you know you have to have um you know a standard an scp a standard compliance program right you have to have a bsa office you have to have a person an individual who's in charge of you have to have um risk assessments in place you know you have to have a person who's doing those kind of risks so but <laughs> What does that tell you? You, you know, you, you have to have individuals, you have to have people, but there's very little guidance at all what those people have to be doing, which, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. It means that all these banks are, you know, it's, it's like a grade 11 math exam, right? You're sitting around going, you know, you're sort of, you know, are other people able to do this, right? I mean, other people, <laughs> so that's what's going on in the industry. People are sort of sitting up, peeking around, their necks are craning, are, 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 what are other folks doing? I mean, are they figuring this stuff out? So these conversations are happening. People are, 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 are coping with these regulations, coping with the enormous scale of this challenge as best they can. And they are starting to, you know, I don't, I don't want to say actually, you know, actively cooperating day to day, but there is certainly a high level of cooperation in terms of conversations around what are you guys doing? What's the range of best practices? What's the range of just practices at all? Are, do you, how many how many folks do you have and are they what you know what kind of tools are they using what kind of um, 
What kind of policies are you putting in place? Those conversations are happening. There is a sense in the industry of standard practice becoming more publicly acknowledged. And, and when that happens, of course, the regulators take notice of it and they, uh, they start to you know, respond accordingly. There's all these RFIs flying around, requests for information around uh, policies are being drafted. And uh, you know, the, 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 the folks, the regulators writing those policies are talking to the industry and the industry is listening and vice versa. So what all this means is as community grows, as banks sort of come together, these conversations start, you get a sense of what's everyone doing? How well is it working? Um, and that out of that grows this sense of, well, here's what's possible. And here's how the industry can respond to these enormous challenges. I, that's where I see the optimism coming from. And that for us, I mean, it's solidated means, okay, well, we want to be part of this community, you know, because it, it's, it's, first off, it's exciting, it's productive. And it, it doesn't mean that our voice is, you know, is the one that, you know, we don't necessarily want to be the ones necessarily standing up and, 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 and educate the industry. It's the other way around. The industry is educating us. We, we are seeing how valuable these kind of insights are, and we want to share that, right? We, we want to give folks like Cindy Nowacki Weaver and Rebecca Boddington and, and Georgie Costamo over at, at Midfrost and others, we want to give them a voice, a chance to, you know, give voice to the community that's fighting FinCron. That's part of the reason for this for this podcast. That's, that's a big part of the reason for the, the series of webinars we've been doing with the ACFCS. It's to give the people that we're talking to a voice and, and become part of that community and help that community grow. Well, well said. Well said. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we've talked about technology. We've talked about, you know, uh, AI and, and innovation, but innovation is driven by people. Right. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, recognizing, supporting, empowering those people is is what it's all about, and I'm I'm happy that uh, that's where your focus has been, and and uh, you've you've really been able to do that well, I think, on our our webinars and presentations and that type of thing. So definitely appreciate it. It's really been a pleasure, John, and and thank you for the the conversation. I just you know in in closing, um, you know, any final thoughts or words of wisdom to share with the listeners? Just one. I mean. Uh, I have my, I'm a sales guy, right? My, my job is to talk to people. My job is to constantly reach out. And, and if there is a theme, if there's something that I hear from people, it, it, it is that they would love to know and they'd love to become part of this community just so that they get a sense of what's going on inside, you know, inside their organization, inside other banks, right? There's nothing so terrifying as feeling you're alone when the stakes are this high, when, you know, when the weight is on you. Uh, for to build a, a world-class compliance program to, to tackle this problem that you and I just talked about and to do it alone is terrifying. To do it as part of a community, to do it with um, you know, a sense of what other banks are doing and what other banks have had success at, that's much less frightening. So I do want to say that um, for everybody who's listening, if you, if you feel that you, you, know, you feel a sense of wanting to become a part of that community, you, that's the right feeling become part of there are ways to do that join the acfcs you know join the other organizations out there that nurture community do all of the things that help you uh contribute and help you learn from others and i think i think that will do uh do wonders uh, both for your success and for your career that's great uh, that's, that's fantastic advice i mean collaboration is something that i think 
everyone's felt like has been sorely lacking, whether that's, you know, collaboration between public and private sector, within private sector, between individuals within institutions or departments. So uh, I think that's a great theme to end on. Uh, and John, thank you so much. I mean, it's, it's, you're in a, you're in a unique position and uh, you're an insightful, you're an insightful guy. So it's been, it's been great to hear your perspective on what has been, you know, a truly singular time in the world of financial crime detection and prevention. So again, thanks so much for joining us on this uh, episode of the Financial Crimecast. Ryan, always a pleasure. And thank you so much to our listeners out there. Just as a reminder, the Crimecast is available on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and uh, many of your other favorite podcasting services. So if you're not currently listening on one of those, please check us out there. And please join us again for the next episode. And don't forget to uh, to uh, check out that webinar with uh, Silent8 as well. So uh, it's been a pleasure and look forward to having you join us for the next episode. Bye for now.